Let's pray together. Father, the name of Jesus is absolutely beautiful to our ears. Lord of lords, King of kings, your Son and our Savior. The one who now dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. The one who's always promised to be with us until the very close of this age. And then for us to be in his presence and yours for eternity. What a plan, Lord. A plan for our life now and eternal. And a God who's working out that plan moment by moment with precision and accuracy, always achieving your purpose. Father, we've come together this morning to say thank you. To pause in a world and in a life that's so cluttered with people and things and desires and wants. And now we have that opportunity corporately, Lord, to just stop. And say, Father, it's not about all those things, it's about you. You're the one who's given life to us. You're the one who's given purpose to our life. You're the one who's given us gifts and talents. And you're the one who gives us opportunity and then manages that whole thing, all through the power of your Holy Spirit. Sometimes, Lord, we take credit for the things you've done, and I ask you to forgive us for that. Sometimes, Lord, we like to hear the sound of our own voice, and we don't listen to yours. Sometimes, Lord, we want the applause, and the applause belongs uniquely and totally to you. And, Lord, sometimes we want to be worshipped. Forgive us. We get things in the wrong order. We've been deceived. We think we're going to find pleasure and happiness in the things that belong to you and not to us. And Lord, when we get that in the right order, we find the blessing that only you can give, a peace beyond any human comprehension a sense of oneness with you. And then, Lord, we start to live, being the people you want us to be. Father, there are a lot of things in our life that challenge our faith. If someone we love or if we become ill, it has a way of challenging us. If our vocation or our income becomes iffy and uncertain, that challenges us again, Lord. If things don't work out like we expect them to work or want them to work, we find ourselves being challenged once again. And Lord, you would use all of those human circumstances, no matter what it is, to your own end, and you would have us turn and depend on you. 
So I ask you, Lord, if there are those among us this morning whose walk with you is shaky right now because of a challenge or a series of challenges, I pray that you would direct us back to you. Get us to focus once again on you, Lord, and give your Holy Spirit the freedom to give us the anointing of that peace and that joy. Lord, I'm reminded of your disciples who found themselves in a jail after having been beaten. In the innermost parts of that jail, unable to free themselves. And about midnight, unattended by anyone in the medical community, they began to sing hymns, hymns of praise. Help us to be like those folks, Lord knowing that you're going to take care of us also. Dear God, I have a few things that are dear to my heart and dear to the hearts of all of us. Somehow in your wisdom, you have allowed us to be born into a beautiful land. Arguably the most beautiful place on this earth. But Lord, we're making a mess out of it. I pray for your help. I pray you would not give us what we might deserve. But instead, dear God, that you would shed your grace on us. And that you would cause a renewal to take place in this land, not just for our benefit, not just for the benefit of our children and grandchildren and of the generations to come, but that through that blessing and that personal experience, we might have a passion to share Jesus with other people in our country and around the world, that we might be a light unto this world. Take these dry bones, I pray, and cause them to come alive and bless our land by helping us to turn back to you. Father, every Sunday when we come together, we are reminded that We have people in military and police uniforms all around this world. People who put their lives at risk to help us have this way of life. Help them not to feel alone, Lord. Help them to feel your presence. And let it be a time in their life when they draw closer to you. Father, we have bundled up in our church so many wonderful spiritual gifts, so many talents, I thank you, Lord, that we use those to reach other people and to share what you have given to us with others. I pray that we might also freely give the gospel away, that others might benefit from that. And then I pray, dear God, that there would be a stirring in myself and in all of us, that you'd give us an irresistible urge to come closer to you, to know you more perfectly, to find our contentment in you, and to know, dear God, above all other things, that you sincerely love us as you have demonstrated through the gift of your Son. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be your church, both now and triumphantly forever and ever.
Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Romans, the first chapter. Romans, the first chapter. And we're going to look at two verses this morning, the 16th and the 17th. Romans 1, 16 and 17. And please keep your Bibles open. I'd like you to refer back to the passage as I walk us through the passage. Once you've found your place, please look up so I'll know we're ready to move on. You know, potentially, this can be one of the most rewarding times in our week. Because in essence, what's about to happen as we open the Word of God is He's going to step right up here and He's going to talk to all of us. And He's the one who gives us the ears to hear. Let's ask Him for that help. Let's pray. Father, as we open Your Word, we pray for the power of Your Gospel to be at work in this place. Pray, dear God, that as we read and study this passage, that it would speak to each one of us and that we would go home with something very special from our time together today. So bless us, I pray, Lord, and help us to take the blessing home and to recall it throughout the next week, that it might find a home in our mind and find expression in our behavior and our lifestyle. For we ask it in the very precious and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> if you um, were to get on a plane in Atlanta and you were to fly to Miami and change planes and fly down to Quito, Ecuador, And change planes and fly down to Manta on the coast of Ecuador on the Pacific Ocean. And then you were to get into a vehicle and drive for about an hour up into the mountains. You'd come to a little town, Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. Corpus Christi, if you looked at it, would remind you of what we've seen in the movies all of our life of a western town back in the late 1800s. There are no paved streets. In fact, there's only one street, and it's the main street. And it's probably 40 or 50 feet wide. And if you stood at the end of the street and looked the three or four blocks down that dirt street, what you would see on each side are wooden sidewalks and wooden buildings, and most of the doors are open wide so you can look inside and go in the little shops. Only thing that's missing are the hitching rails. I didn't see any horses. And There's a man at the far end of the street, and just looking at him, you kind of think he works for the town. He's got a 50-gallon drum. He's got wheels on it. And he's pushing this drum in front of him with one handle. And he's got a piece of wood about that long with a nail sticking out of the end of it. And he's the trash man. He's picking up the litter out of the road and putting it by scraping it off in this 50-gallon drum. As he's walking along and leaving a very clean street behind him, 
this lady comes out of her shop. And they almost pass. And I'm sure he must have seen her. But he didn't acknowledge her. And she didn't acknowledge him. And she threw her garbage out right behind him. And she walked back in the shop. And he kept right on walking. Picking up the trash. (coughs) I've thought about that a lot of times over the years. and, And I think what that's symbolic of is the world that we live in when we are non-believers. Kind of going about our business, not paying a whole lot of attention to other people unless somehow they get in front of us and she was behind him. And it does seem to me there's a lot of trash being thrown around. Sometimes that trash is thrown our way. Sometimes it's just litter that touches a lot of lives. And that kind of trash is what destroys the joy that the Lord intends for us to have. So I wonder, what's it take to change that dynamic? What does it take to cause people to be sensitive to each other? Not because of what they can get out of it, but because it's the right thing to do. And what does it take, what kind of change in your life and mine to cause us to not only not want to have anything to do with the trash, but want to do something about that trash and not just try to weave our way through life? I think there are a lot of folks in the church who would like to make it through life without encountering that litter. And if we get through life doing that and it doesn't disrupt our life, we feel like we've been a success. But that sure does fall short of what God intends on us to be doing. So what is it that needs to change for those who don't know Christ to come to know Christ? And what is our role in that? How are we to help? I want you to look at the passage with me. Two verses. And listen as God speaks to us. Romans, the first chapter, the 16th and 17th verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. What I want you to do is I want you to go back to that 16th verse. It's just loaded with all sorts of messages for us. And I want us to work our way through the 16th verse for a minute. First thing it says is, and this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and what he's doing, he's sharing his heart. He's writing a letter to some people he hadn't even met yet. But he's heard about them. They're at the very heart of the Roman Empire, which is the strongest power on earth. No one had ever had that kind of consolidated power before. And he's writing a letter to a group of Christians who are in that city of Rome. And he says to them, I am not ashamed of the gospel. When you see the word ashamed, 
what it really means is, on the one hand, I'm not ashamed of the content of the gospel. And if you have walked by faith, you know something I know. God is true. God keeps his word. What God has said to us, you can rely on it. Always. He never changes. So as we mature in our faith, we start to understand the content of the gospel. On the other hand, to not be ashamed, Paul is also saying, I don't look at myself as disqualified from sharing that truth. You know what happens when you think you're disqualified? When you think it's not your responsibility because you don't have the experience or the education or whatever it is that's supposed to qualify us in our own minds, we become like a deer in the headlights. It causes us to freeze. And if we don't think we're able to share Jesus with somebody else, we don't. We're muted. And we look for our pastors to do it because they're theologically trained. Well, I know pastors who can't do it either. We look for the elders of our church. We voted them into office and we expect them to be the spiritual leaders and be surrogates for us. That's not how it works. <coughs> the elders of the church and your pastoral staff need to set an example as they encourage you to become involved and not disqualify yourself and be ashamed of the gospel. Someone said repeatedly from the time you were a child until this moment, it's inappropriate to talk about spiritual things in public places. Now, there are a lot of ways of saying that, but that's what we keep hearing and it's being reinforced. That is not true. So don't try to hide behind that or use that for an excuse. That is not what the Bible teaches us. You and I are to be ministers together. And God's called us to not be ashamed. (coughs) The gospel. I remember when I was attending church as a young boy before I came to know Christ, and I would hear someone mention the gospel and mention good news. And I thought, where's the good news? They killed him. And as a child, I couldn't get that to fit together. That wasn't good news. Obviously, I didn't understand the gospel. But there are a lot of people who say, how can it be Good Friday, the day he was crucified? Incidentally, I invite you to come on Good Friday at noon. We're going to have a service, and I've been in the ministry for 40 years, and I've never preached a Good Friday service. Can you believe that? I don't know how that happened. I sat down and thought about it the other day. It's not because I didn't want to. I just never got asked to. And my daddy told me, you don't dance unless they ask you to dance. So I've never done that. So you might want to come and let's see what I say. But how can that be Good Friday? How can it be good news? Well, it's good news for us. Why is it good news for us? Because the gospel explains to us, as did the Shorter Catechism this morning, that we come under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And he does something for us we cannot and would not ever do 
Paul says to us in Romans 3, we don't even think about God left to ourselves. So what he does is he comes into us and brings us under conviction and helps us see what's always been there, that we are sinners. Everybody who's ever been born into this world after the fall of Adam and Eve are sinners. And sinners have no place with a righteous God. For he will not allow unrighteousness in his presence. That's why he put Adam and Eve out of his presence. And he hadn't changed his mind. So the good news is that as he brings us under conviction of his Holy Spirit and helps us to see our need of a Savior, at the same time he provides the Savior. One picture that I've always enjoyed is God, as a just God, passes judgment on us, the sinner. And as soon as he has done that, he takes off his robe and he walks down and he stands in our place and receives his own judgment. And he goes to a cross and he dies an atoning death to atone not for his sin, for there is none, but to atone for your sin in mind. And folks, when that becomes real to us, it's because the gospel's at work in us. It's because God is now putting his arm around us and drawing us into a relationship. And his Holy Spirit then gives us this passion to have a relationship, this passion to want to be one with God, to be one of his children. And the natural response is to say with our own lips, Jesus is the Son of God. I believe. Do you believe? If you've never uttered those words, if you never come to that point, and the Holy Spirit's reaching out right at this moment and tugging at your heartstring, sitting right where you are, say, Jesus, I believe. I believe. It's amazing. That's what works. That's the ingredient that God gives us, this faith, to help us come to faith. You all understand? It's so fundamental. And it's so very essential. He says to us, I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's something that's been going on in this country since before I was born. There aren't a whole lot of things that have been going on. (laughs) You shouldn't laugh. (laughs) We've seen a lot in our lifetime. But you know one of the things that's been unfolding... And it really came to a climax back in the 1960s and what we call the sexual revolution, which has had a huge impact on this country. It's one of those moments in our history that has not been good for us. One of the manifestations of that is the mainline churches in this country have been in decline since the mid-60s. One of those mainline denominations has lost in excess of 50,000 members a year, every year, since 1965. And you can look at the top 25 denominations numerically in this country, and only a very small handful are growing denominations. I've told you before, even the Southern Baptists have now lost membership and lost attendees for the last four years. It's not a good thing. You know the two denominations that are growing the most? The Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. 
Jehovah Witness, man, woman, and child, came to my door Saturday. They rang the doorbell, and I went to the door, and they had their little son hand me a watchtower piece of literature. And I looked at it, and it was upside down, so I couldn't tell what it was, but I had a hunch, and I said to the father, what organization do you represent? And he said, the Jehovah Witnesses. And I took the piece of literature and I handed it back to him and said, no, thank you. And I hugged his son and I went back in my house. They're knocking on doors. You know when they're out in mass? On Sunday mornings when we're in church. You know why? They're out knocking on the doors of the people who aren't in church trying to tell them about their God. And they do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They have altered the Gospel of John. So it doesn't teach that. So, only a very few churches, denominations, evangelic denominations, are growing in our country. And while they are growing, and our denomination, the PCA, has pretty consistently grown every year since we started back in 73, if you look at all those that are declining and all those that are growing, we're losing about 1.5% a year overall. America's becoming secularized. How can that be? There's so many of us. How can that be? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we not willing to tell other people about Jesus and the good news? If we don't do it, it doesn't get done. Interesting thing. God did not call the parent teachers organizations of America to share the gospel. God did not call the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Tea Party to share the good news of Jesus Christ. He did not empower anyone except his church, you and I. I challenge you. Look at your past and ask yourself, have I been ashamed of the gospel? If so, like Paul Let's get over it. It's inappropriate for us. He goes on to say to us, still in verse 16, that it's the power of salvation. When he uses the word power to a Roman, that's an interesting word because they know all about power. They know about how they have sent their legions in to other lands and fought against countries and city-states and how once they have overcome them, they have then turned and said to those Warriors from the other side who could still walk have said, if you would like to become one of us, you can become one of us. And they have assimilated them into their armies. And they have to promise to be loyal by saying, Hail, Caesar, which means we worship you as a god, reminiscent of Nazi Germany worshiping Adolf Hitler as if he were a deity, pledging your complete loyalty. And if they would make that promise to serve the Roman emperor and promise never to serve in their native land again, 
they joined a privileged part of that society and they became legionnaires. They know all about power. They went all throughout the Mediterranean world, put roads in, made those roads safe, and it was all by the power and the might of their armies that they did that. And now Paul says to these people who are conditioned to think in terms of power, he says, let me tell you about the power that changes lives. And he uses a word from the Greek that literally translates dynamite. So when he says the gospel is the power of salvation, he's saying it has the effect of dynamite. Now, being raised in the city, I haven't been around a lot of dynamite. But on a few occasions, I've seen it. And you know what happens when dynamite is ignited? Things start to shake. Things start to change form. Things that were once in one particular form are now modified significantly. And what Paul is saying is, you get it. You understand power. Well, the power of the gospel is it's going to change lives. It's going to change lives not only with your eternal destiny, it's going to change lives about how you live your life now. I sat in my study, and by the grace of God, I can recount many, many people where I have seen the power of the gospel change their lives. There's a man started attending church. One of those guys that when he walked in church, everybody kind of looked at him because they knew him from being in the community, and I'm not so sure they wanted to see him in church. He was a scoundrel. You list some of the social sins, and he could check off almost every box. Started attending church and attended for a while, and then one Sunday, an announcement was made. And the announcement was one that was made on a regular basis. The announcement was, we're going to have the Lord's Supper on such and such a time. At the end of the service, the man walked up and he said, I am so excited, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. What can I bring? That's how far out of the loop he was. He made a profession of faith. And his reputation in the community began to change. And I do believe that that which you uncover, God covers back over. And he uncovered it by repenting. And God has changed his reputation in that community. That's the kind of radical change I'm talking about. When the gospel is applied to us by the Holy Spirit, things start to change in our life. And you can see outward manifestations of that change. Now, folks, if you haven't experienced that change, you need to get in your prayer closet and say, Lord, what am I doing to resist? Because when you come to know Jesus Christ, you are a new person. And there ought to be change in your public persona, and there ought to be change in the privacy of your own thoughts. And when we find that's not happening, then we're given a spiritual stiff arm to the Holy Spirit. We're really resisting. Paul uses words like thwarting, quenching, resisting. There's a power at work. 
And Paul says that power that's at work is the power of salvation. Isn't it interesting? And some of you can probably identify, I can sure identify with this, that you can walk through childhood and adolescence and you can get to college and you can get out of college and you can start to live life and never have one serious thought about spiritual things. It can be all around you. You can sit in church because that's the appropriate thing to do in my generation and not have a serious thought. Any of you experienced that? Oh, please. Am I the only one? Thank you. Somebody probably held their hand up just because they felt sorry for me. (laughs) But you can do that. People do that all the time. You can ask people, 40 and under today, casually, a question about spiritual things. Invariably, they will not be able to answer your question. The simplest of questions. It's not the world we live in. It's not being spoken to them so they can hear it. And the Holy Spirit hasn't quickened their ability to hear. What they need to hear is that we have a God that loves us. A God who really cares so much for us that he would give his only son for us. And a God who wants us to respond to him. So he makes that mechanism available to us. And he invites us to respond. With the promise, he's going to put his arms around us. And uniquely, he is going to save us from this perverse generation. He's going to save us now. And we begin to live as new people in this fallen world. And then we get to experience the glory and the majesty of being with him forever and ever. Salvation, being saved. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. And he wants you and I to be able to utter the same words, for us to really believe that in our heart of hearts. Still in verse 16, he says, this gospel is available to everyone. Let me help us understand what he just said. He's saying it's not exclusively something that is owned just by the Jew, but it's for the Jew and the Gentile. And when he says Gentile, he's talking about everybody else. However you want to label yourself, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And he's saying this gospel, this good news, is for everyone else, everyone in the world. And he says... The only condition is that you have to believe. You know, when you join our church or any church in our denomination, we would like you to believe everything we believe. But you don't have to do that on the front end. What we would like you to do and what you must do is make a viable profession of faith. Say to us that God has called you And that in his power and in his grace, you have responded. That's the only thing you have to do to be a member of our church. And that's the essential thing. That's the important thing. The rest of it will come in time. But that's what's really important. So what he says is, all you have to do is believe, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. 
By God's grace, I have in my ministry seen Jews and Gentiles accept Jesus. And I want you to know it is a miracle. Because God has snatched us out of darkness and brought us into light. God has changed us. And that absolutely is a miracle. A life-altering miracle. I've had people say to me, well, Pastor, what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believeth in him shall have eternal life. And they're saying... This is inclusive of everyone if you'll just believe. I, I believe that. I also believe that believing is a gift from God. And why he has chosen to share that gift with me or with you, I have no idea. Scripture says he does that according to the kindness of his own will. He's God. He gets to choose when, how, and whom. And we don't do that choosing. So when you stop and think about who the gospel is available to, it's available to all those that he has called unto himself or will call unto himself. And then he is the one who makes that happen. He causes it to happen. Now, where are you in all of that? Can you personalize that? Can you see how you came to faith? If you hear in your own testimony, I did this, I did that, I accepted Christ, there's a particular moment when I surrendered, I challenge you, go back and rethink it. And ask yourself, what was God doing? Where was God in all of that? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He called us out of darkness. So personalize it. Go back and think about it and ask yourself those questions. I believe something very wonderful happens when we start to really understand how the gospel was applied to our life. If you look down the 17th verse, he talks about faith. He said, the way all this happened is faith to faith. If you look back in our history, you'll find there was a man named Pelagius about 400 years after the birth of Christ. We believe he came from the British Isles. He was a Roman Catholic monk. And in those days, it wasn't just Roman Catholic. It was one church. And he was very idealistic, and he believed with his heart sincerely that if we would try hard enough, we could be good. He did not believe in original sin. He believed that Adam had set a terrible example and people were following it and that Jesus had set a righteous example and people needed to follow that. And he believed that we had the ability to make that choice on our own and to effectually follow Jesus if we chose to. (coughs) He went to Rome. He went to teach. And he began to teach that there was no original sin. The church responded and excommunicated him. And Pelagius just kind of faded off the horizon, not to be heard of again. It's also said of him that he became terribly disillusioned, 
Because when he went to what we know as the Vatican, he was so disappointed in all of the moral and ethical corruption. Well, I dare say you can go into a lot of denominational headquarters and you would be amazed at what goes on. Things aren't quite as holy as we would like them to be. So the question is, can a person on their own without God's help change that? The church in Rome and worldwide excommunicated him, but over the next few hundred years started drifting into what we call neo-Pelagianism, which elevates more and more the person and causes the work of the Holy Spirit and of God and Jesus to depreciate. I want you to know they can't hold stage at the same time. You cannot worship one and worship the other. We're not built that way. So the church, up until the Reformation, struggled with that, and the church started depreciating the role of Christ and the role of God. Then a man by the name of Martin Luther came around, and there was a new spark of revival in the church, and he began to struggle with these two verses, and he came out saying, this is about faith, this isn't about works. This isn't what I'm doing, it's about what God's doing for me. And he began to teach that, and he taught it to his beloved denomination until they finally put him out of the denomination. In the early Reformation period, in Switzerland and all across Europe, there was a re-emphasis on faith, that we're saved by faith, not by ourselves. And you know what's happened since the 1500s? Spiritually, we're dumbing down again. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear people, even in our denomination, who are saying, it's not just about faith. It's also about us. It's also about our good works. And that's all over our country in denomination after denomination. You know why I think that is? Original sin hasn't gone away. And when you become a believer and I become a believer, we still struggle with original sin, which says, I don't want to listen to God. I want to be in control. And if you just give us a little time, we seem to gravitate back to that. And what I hear Paul saying to the Romans and to the church and every generation is you're saved by faith. You're saved by grace. It's a gift of God. And he teaches that repeatedly in the New Testament. Now, why is that important other than to get it right theologically? I think there's another reason. If I understand the grace that's been shown to me, if I realize how much God has loved me, then I want to respond to that love. And the way I respond is I serve him. And I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of salvation unto anyone and everyone that he calls. How about you? You see, if you appreciate what's been done for you and you understand that in your own personal life, 
then when you walk in the door to worship, this is a very different experience. We've come in here for a personal time of communion with God, and he's a God that has his arms wide open and says, I love you. I love you. Come enjoy the embrace. But if you walk in that back door under your own power and you're not coming to really worship the one that has saved you, this is a very different experience. You're in here and you want the preacher to pump you up and get you ready for the next week and you want to have a really interesting sermon and you want to go out and it'll last till you get to your car. It doesn't work. It's the power of the gospel that works. And folks... He wants you to not be ashamed of it, but to tell your personal experience to other people that you meet. And he will provide the listeners. Golly, you know, if all of us and all of the churches that are true to him around this world were to get a passion for saying, thanks, Lord, can you imagine what would happen? Can you imagine the increase of people who would come to know Jesus because he's calling them and using us? Don't just sit there. Don't just be a recipient. Share your experience with Jesus with somebody who hasn't had that experience. Folks, if you do that, our church will become even more beautiful and meaningful and you will feel the hand of God let's pray Father, I pray for all of us that we would have the eyes to see people who are around us who don't know you. And I pray, dear God, that we wouldn't have the courage, but just the passion to lovingly and gracefully find out if you're at work in their life and if you would like us to share Jesus with them. Father, there are people in our own families Children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, moms, dads who don't know you. I pray you give us a passion to speak to them. There are people who've been around us day in and day out, and we don't think about their spiritual well-being, and I pray you'd give us a real sensitivity to that. Father, help us to lock arms to walk out of this building as ambassadors for you, ready to serve. Thank you, dear God, for our time together. Thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.